Well, welcome. I'd like to welcome you all to L.A. Louvre Gallery on behalf of myself and all our colleagues here, particularly Cindy Davis, Elizabeth East, and the other director, Lisa Johns, for this uh, unusual evening. We don't, can't recall having too many occasions where an artist is uh, willingly um, able and ready to talk about their work. It's something artists don't generally want to do in public. But, uh, <laughs> Not all artists are fools. <laughs> but some, as many of you know already, is an exceptional individual in many ways, not only as a visual artist, but also as a teacher and someone very comfortable sharing his thoughts and ideas with others. So we are the beneficiaries tonight of, of that occasion, this occasion. Um, Tom has, I won't go into a long introduction about Tom, because you're all here, you are familiar with his work. But I, to one of the proudest associations I have personally in the gallery to represent Tom. It's an artist, he is an artist who, when I was shaping the gallery in 1975, his studio visits to come here in Venice. And um, Tom, many of you may not know, right out of college had a very precocious start to his career. And it had an immediate international attention, shows in Europe, different parts of the United States. And he could have gone down a very cozy path which many artists do, some do at least. But the great ones challenge themselves and constantly question what they're doing and why. There are many crossroads in Tom's career, but this one, if I can be so bold to say, was a very intellectually challenging moment for him because he realized he needed to make some changes and directions that would take him possibly out the limelight for quite some time, as he tested his own intellectual acuity in relation to his thoughts about art history and where he should go. And while I always admired and actually from the beginning wanted to work with him, I wasn't good enough for Tom at the beginning. <laughs> I, have a I have a different version of that story, <laughs> but we won't go into that. <laughs> supplemented his life uh, financially speaking with teaching 
institutionally, as well as from every distinguished university college art school in the area. In the end, candidly, I can say that too, Tom. Uh, you're not good enough in many ways. So place, and with this independence, he, proceed, he, he continues his pursuit. So without further ado, thank you for being here tonight, Tom. Thank you. We have been working for a long time, and <laughs> you know, I we really started exhibiting around the time that I met my wife, who unfortunately can't be here this evening because she has the flu. But I feel I've had two marriages all along, and. <laughs> And both of them have had their ups and downs. Uh, regardless, though, just like I'm very grateful to my wife, I'm very grateful to Peter and Kimberly and Elizabeth and the entire staff of L.A. Louver. I, I haven't had much of a career, really, and we can go into that another time. It doesn't matter, but this gallery has always been supportive of my work. And I, I have had occasion to show with other galleries. That was long ago. And I must say something that probably all of you already know as well is that I don't know of any gallery that is as professional as L.A. Louvre. And by that I mean really respectful of their artists. And the evidence of that is in this library that's over here. There, there is a complete history of all of the artists that have ever shown in this gallery, even some of them who may not be affiliated with it anymore. This kind of respect for the history, this tells us that Peter and everyone else here takes art really seriously and they truly respect every artist with whom they deal. And I think that means they also respect all of the patrons of the art in that way as well. And in my very limited experience, that is really a remarkable situation. It's, you don't often encounter dealers who take that kind of pride in what they do so that they, they collect this kind of comprehensive history of everything and everyone that has come through. So I am honored and really lucky to be showing in this gallery. And I'm really grateful to all of you for allowing me to do this. I'm also very grateful to everyone who is here, not only because you've, you're here, but there are many, many people in this audience this evening who have been very supportive for a very long time in many, many ways. And although I'm happy at the reception of this exhibition and I'm not in any way diminishing my own efforts, 
I can say that I can't do this without the kind of support that I've had from everyone here. So it's important for me to make that really clear from the outset. I also want to say that although I've been looking forward to this evening, I've also been dreading it. <laughs> I've been dreading it for one particular reason, because as you know, those of you that have received the announcement and you saw the little blurb that's at the stairway on the way up here, there's a reference to the Avatamsaka Sutra. And, you know, I would like everyone to understand something. I'm not a Buddhist in the sense that I've never taken vows or have been initiated into the world of Buddhism formally. I'm not here this evening, and this exhibition is, should not be in any way taken by anyone, even in their farthest fantasies, as being a kind of articulation of Buddhism. I'm not a spokesperson for Buddhism, and I'm un utterly unqualified to discuss it on any level whatsoever. So I just wanted to <laughs> clarify this because it can cause a tremendous amount of confusion, and those of you who know anything about the world of Buddhism whatsoever know that the, one of the first admonishments is to just keep your mouth shut because <laughs> if you can inadvertently, even with the best of intentions, cause a considerable amount of confusion and suffering in the world in that way. So I am not interested in doing that. And I'm not here presenting a particular point of view if you have a different opinion, you are automatically correct, and I'm not here in a position of having to defend a position or argue about it in any way, because frankly, my gifts are more with the brush rather than in debating. So for some reason, I just felt it was really important for me to put out this disclaimer from the start. <laughs> Having said that, it, I have to say the other thing, you know. One can be a cook without having to be a chef. <laughs> so I have been meditating for many, many years, about 30 years. There was a short period of about four or five years where I didn't meditate. because I went into the world of Orthodox Judaism. And the way that happened was that my son, whose idealized portrait is over there, when he was a teenager, moved into that direction. My wife is not Jewish. I was never observant, and my interests were always in the world of Hinduism and Buddhism. When Henry started moving into this direction, and he did that for many reasons, and I think particularly because of his intellectual proclivities, 
my wife started to freak out. <laughs> she thought he was going to get sucked into a weird cult. So I said, don't worry, honey, I'm going there with him. <laughs> because this was an opportunity for me to look into what was there into a world that I had actually been born into, but for a variety of reasons hadn't had an opportunity to take advantage of, so it gave me an opportunity. You know, Henry can be very gregarious under certain circumstances, and, you know, he, but he's shy, and this was a very, very, you know, kind of radical move to make for a 15-year-old kid. So I felt he needed a companion besides having to know that my role was to kind of negotiate between he and my wife in the situation. So I went there willingly and with a great deal of interest and I did the due diligence. I went and I put on tefillin every morning, a sunrise at the synagogue, and I learned the entire liturgy and all of the prayers, etc. and I did that for a good five years. There were many issues that came up that are not part of the conversation this evening that were there from the very beginning that were problematic and many questions that could never be answered to my satisfaction by the time Henry was old enough and so far advanced in his beyond just initiation, you know, deep immersion here, that I knew that he didn't need me anymore. As a matter of fact, I was getting in his way. And so at that point, we parted company. I didn't, I had escorted him the family remained intact, so the job was done, so to speak, and I could remove myself from my parental obligation and come back into the world of meditation. The trying to figure out where we're going to go here. Okay. I want to say, I know that all of you have questions, some of which I've already anticipated because Elizabeth was kind enough to have a little conference with me a few days ago about most frequently asked questions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I will address those. Um, since we are talking about Henry and all of that, as, you, as all of you know, the history of an artist's life is seamless, but it changes continually. And we do have some work after the lecture that you can go and see in this room, which one of the works is from my last exhibition, and the other works that are 
of mine in that other room are works that I've done in the last four years, five years since my last exhibition that we haven't had an opportunity to exhibit formally this way. And what you should know, though, is that that portrait of Henry was one of the very first pieces that I started after my last show. Then some of these other works were done in between, and then these paintings here. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about how all of this work came about. In my last exhibition, I had a particular work, which is now in the collection of my wife, because although we offered it for a very long time, no one seemed interested in it. And I'm secretly very happy, even though I felt it was the best work in my exhibition. And I was curious that nobody was interested in it. But I don't, as soon as a work comes back, then I give it to Mel, then I have nothing else to do with it, and it's hers. And that work was called Person. And Originally, my intent in doing that painting was I wanted to see if I could visually represent intelligence, a specific kind of intelligence, perhaps genius. And I was thinking of you know genius models like Beethoven, let's say, or something like that. And although I think that work came to a really successful conclusion, I didn't feel that I had really achieved what I was after. And so one of the, the very first work that I started after that exhibition was that portrait of Henry, but I wasn't intending it on being a portrait of Henry. I was intending it on moving forward into this representation of intelligence of a particular type. So I worked on it for many, many months, off and on. And then, and I had already started reading the Avatamsaka Sutra, and that was a couple of years before that, and sort of wondering about it. But I'd also gotten emerged in James Joyce and Ulysses. Now, one of the things that should be said at this point is that certainly for all the years that I've been working with Peter. <laughs> it's always been somehow necessary for me to have a literary anchor for my work. Literature has been really, really important as a source for the imagination. And certainly, that's not a unique situation for myself. We just look at art history, and it's all over the place. Once I get involved with a writer, it usually settles into a particular work. And then, as most of you know, you can't just read it. You have to study it in order to understand it. And currently, you know, I'm sort of juggling these, the James Joyce Ulysses and the Avatamsaka Sutra. And they are all, they're both formidable works and it's wonderful because I know now that I don't have to look for another literary anchor for the rest of my life because <laughs> this is so rich that there's enough there for many lifetimes to come. So that's really 
comforting. So the reason I'm bringing this up is that I started that portrait, which was supposed to be an image of intelligence. But it often happens, I got to a place where I didn't know how to continue. You know, many, many people operate under a terrible misconception. They can walk into an exhibition like this and they imagine that, oh, that's Tom Woodle. You know, I wish I could be like that Tom Woodle because look at it, he's got it all figured out and all he's got to do is just paint it in and, and that's that. But what they don't know is that Tom Woodle is just like everyone else. He doesn't know what he's doing and he has to figure it out and there's a tremendous amount of anguish and indecision and et cetera involved. And so that was certainly the case with that picture back there. Part of my son's adventure into the world of orthodoxy was that he, you know, he's always been a good boy, but he's had his way of rebelling and terrorizing his parents. And one of the ways that he did it was when he was in high, at the end of high school, he said, I'm taking a year off and I'm going to Israel, to yeshiva. And that was still at the time when there were more frequent, you know, terrorist attacks there. And we were, you know, like really, really freaking out about it. And then he went, <laughs> obviously, and eventually we went to visit him there. And I'd taken a lot of photographs of him while we were there. And when I came back, I'd put some of these photographs up in the studio just to have around. But I'd, I was still not thinking about him as the subject of this picture. But I started in, and I got stuck. I didn't know where to go. And then I got really involved in the Ulysses. And so then these images of Bloom came up. And so that's what you're going to see in that other room. There are three out of four portraits of Bloom. And then there's Bloom in Nighttown. I'm not going to go into that. If you don't know about it, then Okay, if you do know about the book, then that'll make sense to you. And then there's another painting there called Propagating Pluralities, which was I'd already started reading the Avatamsaka Sutra, and that was from my last exhibition that's there. So that was a couple of years' work. <laughs> and then there's the portrait of Molly Bloom that was started at that time, which is not completed to this day. And then eventually I found my way back to that painting. And then there were those images of Henry. And I've done other paintings of Henry, you know, even since his infancy. And I just, suddenly I realized, you know, really, all of us have really wonderful children who we love and admire. And it's the same thing with, with me and my son, and he really is an exceptionally intelligent and gifted person. And so I felt this was a really nice way 
to sort of communicate with him. And, you know, when you look at that painting carefully, every single hair there is sort of representative of one of the many neurons and, you know, bits of intelligence in him. And he's a complicated person, and so his hair is going all over the place and sort of, you know, winding around itself and all of that stuff. That's what that's supposed to represent. And, of course, those are his eyes and, and his nose and mouth. And, and that's sort of when I was saying goodbye to him. I, you know, you go over there, and I'm going where I'm going. You don't need me anymore. So on his lips, there are these Hebrew words, and they are the beginning of the most sacred moment during the Jewish service. So in the morning and in the afternoon when Jews go to pray, there is a particular sacred moment in the service where you're actually praying to God himself and presenting yourself. And so the opening words of that prayer are on his lips. But <laughs> Henry's a very gifted linguist, and for the last couple of years he's been studying Arabic. And so just as a private kind of affectionate joke from father to son, there are some Arabic words in that picture too, and I'm trying to say, give him sort of Buddhist messages into this serious Jewish, you know, world. Just <laughs> here I am. I'm sending you this. It's just this little conversation. So that is pretty much sort of the story of that picture. Um, I know everybody wants to know about the pips and the painting, the little tiny little pips. So let's just get that over with. And that's a good way to sort of move forward and a good way to talk more about the paintings themselves. And um, the pips originally had a very different source. Uh, some of you who were here 10 years ago. <laughs> saw that I, there was an exhibition up here in this very room of paintings with Laurel and Hardy in them. And I came to Laurel and Hardy. That was another literary source. They, I came to them through Beckett. And certainly, Laurel and Hardy have been sort of bonding agents between my son and myself since his infancy, you know, whenever he'd be or something, we would get the Laurel and Hardy and plug it in and we'd sit there and we would memorize the routines and everything. Um, but later when I became interested in Beckett, most of you may not know this, but the great play Waiting for Godot, Gogol and Didi, Vladimir and Estragon, are really Laurel and Hardy. Um, Beckett was a big fan of the silent cinema. He grew up with it. And they were very important to him. And that's who they really are. They're wearing the bowler hats. One is heavy set, one is thin. And they're repartee. You know, now, and you have to remember that 
Waiting for Godot is a tragic comedy. It's both. And most of you may not know that before becoming a playwright, he considered himself to be a novelist, and he wrote the so-called trilogy. And a lot of some other shows that I've had here were based on those books. But once I sort of got in, I realized, you know, read up on Beckett and realized the source of Waiting for Godot, that was really a fortuitous kind of coincidence because Henry and I had already had this kinship with Laurel and Hardy. And so they made their appearance and I used them in, this, in these paintings. And then, of course, I, was, I became particularly kind of attached to Stanley. And in many of those images, Stanley's there. You know, he's my alter ego because he's there befuddled. He's wearing an apron and everything is going out of control. And that was me because at that time I was Mr. Mom. Melanie worked really hard every day, went to the office. And as much as she would have liked to have been there with Henry, she couldn't be. And I was sort of on call because I was around the studio. I was also doing my teaching, but I was on call. And so I could go and take him to school and come back and make dinner and make breakfast and go to the market and shop. And I was Mr. Mom. And uh, there was a great deal of anxiety. You know, I'm wearing this apron and I'm supposed to be an artist and doing meaningful work. And where the hell is all of this going? And that's who you know, Stanley was for me, and so I appropriated him in this kind of desperate way to have some kind of, um, you know, some identity, <laughs> you know. Um, so then I started to think about clowns, you know. And the history of clowns, and they're associated going way back to street performances. And that makes you think of fortune tellers and card sharks. And that was the connection to cards originally. And, you know, in that exhibition, there were images of cards and things like that. And I, I was using all of the pips on the cards, the diamonds, the spades, etc. But then eventually, I started to just gravitate towards the pips. And then for my last exhibition, Laurel and Hardy were still sort of, they were still there, but they were transitioning out. And the primary image that remained out of all that were the clubs. And you can see them in that painting, Propagating Pluralities, over there. Why did I settle in on the clubs? Probably because it has to do with my own artistic temperament. On the one hand, I can be extremely severe and kind of designer. And on the other hand, there's the romantic part of my temperament that is more openly expressionistic. And the club is really a beautiful, fortunate, Thing that is out there for me because on the one hand it's very flat and emblematic, very designer, 
But on the other hand, it's really organic. It's very plant-like, right? leafy, floral. So it's a beautiful thing that speaks for both temperaments. And secondly, because it's three units, it, it really has, for me, kind of molecular capacity. And it's really beautiful because it can stand for a unit of structure, a little tiny little building block. So that, and hopefully we can conclude now, because I know I've been hammering on for a while, that can bring us to this work here. So now you know the history of those pips, and you don't ever have to ask me again, but I will refer you to everyone else who keeps asking me about them. Anyway, now, I'll tell you a little bit about the imagery here. And by the way, well, we'll just jump to that. You can see why there's an image of Laurel and Hardy here. When, at the, before I finished the work for my last exhibition, I started that drawing of Laurel and Hardy, but I knew that I wanted something else. There was some new degree of intricacy that I was instinctively driving towards, but I didn't know what it was. And it certainly, somehow, I knew it may not have anything to do with what Laurel and Hardy represented anymore, because I had certainly already kind of moved away from there. So please understand that artists are equally as confused as everyone else. And they can come to these crossroads where they really, the the operative phrase is, I don't know. And I don't know is not an opportunity for confusion or an opportunity for, you know. Resignation. It's a fact. It's an actual positive statement. I don't know. So. I just left them. I left the drawings. And then, eventually, there was the portrait of Henry and the <laughs> portraits of Bloom and all of that history I've just told you. And then, you know, I was getting more and more immersed into this flower ornament sutra. And the image you know, is very, very evocative. And at first, because of the immensity, basically this sutra opens at the enlightenment site of the Buddha. The Buddha is having his enlightenment experience. And certainly what happens for the rest of the 1,500 pages is you move into that enlightenment. And what, the, what that means and all of the implications, and you know, I'm not going to go there right now, but I'm just telling you this. It 
is an unbelievable piece of literature because I was already moving in there. I was already reading it, well into it. That's where the title Propagating Pluralities comes from in that painting that was in my last exhibition. Propagating Pluralities. It was the only way that I could condense like some huge essay that says, listen, there are unaccountable billions of trillions of things happening simultaneously right now, and how are we going to deal with them? Propagating pluralities. And after that, I thought, well, I'm going to move into this territory of imagery. And at first, I thought, well, this is big scale stuff, and so I'm going to have to do big scale work. And I prepared myself for it. I went to the art store. I got big paper. I got big <laughs> charcoal. I, and I started. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. Day after day, there was just no connection. Zero. Nothing. And one morning, I was making coffee. And I thought, well, Maybe you have to do the opposite. Paradoxically, and this is how it usually is, as all of you well know, paradoxically, the best way to articulate properties of infinity is to go microscopic. And, and, I, and, I, and I said to myself, well, maybe you've got to take out the magnifying glass instead of this, do that. And the very first drawing I did, trying to move into that direction, was that drawing over there, just to the left of this gold frame piece here. And then this was the following drawing. And you can see they are still tentative. I'm not quite sure, it's, what am I going to do with the background? Is it going to work? If I color in that whole background, is it going to conflict with the flower? I don't know, so I'll just leave it alone and just, you know, do that. And originally, this exhibition was just going to be all drawings because I was just trying to kind of come to terms with it. Eventually, I managed to do this second drawing, but you can see that I, I drew in all the pips in the background, but they're not all filled in. There's just a tiny little corner over there because I was still hesitant. I didn't know. Am I going to do all of this? And then it's going to amount to nothing. And it just, I just wasn't prepared to handle the consequences of that. But eventually, I, went, I moved into these drawings. I, I did that one first, and then I did this one. And by that time, I knew that I, I understood this territory, and I could do it. Now, As you know from reading the little paragraph on the announcement, the Avatamsaka Sutra is nothing but an epic exhortation to meditation. 
at my opening, someone came up to me, and I know they were serious and they were well-intentioned, but they asked me, you know, what drugs am I taking in order <laughs> to be able to, to do this? And I guess what I, I didn't say this to them, or I could have said to them is, well, meditation is my medication. <laughs> and even though these are not intended, and, it, and as I said in my statement, it would be inappropriate to interpret these as expressions of meditation, it would also be disingenuous for me and inappropriate to say that meditation hasn't played an important role because you know, many people have asked me, well, how can you do it? How can you get to that detail? And first of all, I need to say that if I can do it, anybody can do it. I, I, am, I don't have any skills that everybody else doesn't have. And one of the things that I'm continually telling my students, and I know some of them are here this evening, and you're going to hear it another time, is that there is one secret to technical mastery, and I will reveal it to everyone publicly tonight. <laughs> the deepest, darkest secret to technical mastery. Is everyone prepared? Slow down. Slow down. And have no ideas of gaining or losing whatsoever. As soon as you have, if you can slow down, and that's what meditation allows us to do. Meditation means nothing else than observation. There's a, you know, there are a million Zen aphorisms there. There are a million stories about people asking Zen masters, you know, give me the secret. I, I don't have very much time, so <laughs> tell it to me in 10 words or less. What is it? What is the secret? One of these masters was asked this question, and his response was, attention. And the person said, what? You know, I don't get it. And the, the, the next response was, attention, attention. And of course, this goes on for a while till it has to be repeated. That's all it is. Meditation is paying attention. Stopping all of the discursive thoughts, not intentionally, but if you continue to practice paying attention, and that will stop after a while, and everything slows down, and you can see things in a little bit different way. So, in that regard, meditation certainly is part of this work. But, uh, you know, I felt really conflicted about this, even that statement beforehand, because I'm an artist, and these things are richer than that. They are not just models of meditation, and I would be, you know, really tragically, sadly unhappy and, you know, experiencing great despair if the work in here would be misinterpreted. Because 
There is another sutra, and it is called, I don't know what it is called, I haven't found out the name of it yet, but it might have many names, and it could be called the Sutra of Giovanni Bellini, the Sutra of Velasquez, the Sutra of Vermeer, the Sutra of Garabedian, the Sutra of Reinhardt. Th that is the other sutra that's at play here. There are other, even though the Flower Ornament Sutra is an exhortation to meditation, the artists I've just mentioned are an exhortation to a particular standard that they set that everyone else needs to come up to, and that is certainly a very, very integral part of this. So I believe I've answered all of your questions. <laughs> I've told you more than you need to know about my personal life, and I think we can conclude at this moment. Thank you very much. Is, is that a question? I guess I haven't been, I haven't answered everything. <laughs> I worked 